Well, first of all, Brother Sam, I want to thank you for that prayer. Um, that was real special to me. <clears throat> do you all like stories? Why do children like stories? I'm not sure. I had a bad experience one time. I'd been preaching for a while, and, and this seasoned brother came by, and he told me, you know, good preachers, they just stick with the word. They don't get bogged down in all this story stuff, and I felt so bad. And then after a while, I just gave up, and I said, well, you do it your way. I'll do it mine. And um, I make no apologies. I lead to illustrate. I just feel compelled to illustrate to get across. I don't know how else to do it, so... I hope you all can forbear with me in stories. How many of you young people know about manners? You do? Uh, pink glasses there. What's polite mean? I probably wasn't polite to call you that, but I don't know what your name is. What does polite mean? Good and proper. Proper. Do you know that word, proper? Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about a time that you all don't remember, and when uh, anybody here that don't have gray hair don't remember very well either. And it was in the 1960s. How many of you all have ever heard of a hippie? How about you in the blue plaid shirt? What's a hippie? Not, not quite right. How about you? What's a hippie? Have you ever seen a hippie? Okay. There was a time in the 1960s when most of you all weren't here when all that we knew that was proper, do you know that word proper? It's what's good manners and good taste was turned up on the end, and people no longer, uh, it was just each man for his own. There was a great upheaval in our society, and we went to school during that time. And I remember a time when I went to school when we called all of our teachers ma'am or sir. Do you all call your teachers ma'am or sir? You should, good, okay. And I remember there was one boy who liked to fight. He was always picking a fight. His name was Greg Williams. And one day, the recruiting officer from the Army came and took Greg Williams. And they sent him to Vietnam. And they said, if you want to fight, then we have a place for you. There was structure and order. And a lot of that is gone from our society. So the things that people are taught in school and the way that people live is much different in the last 40 to 60 years. How many of you call, how about you right here? What is an uncle? Do you know what an uncle is? Do you have uncles? Yeah. Who are they? Do you know if you have aunts? Okay. Are they the little black bugs that crawl in the sand? No. Okay. <clears throat> Most of us have aunts and uncles. When I was little, we called our aunts and uncles aunt and uncle. 
It was a fearful thing if you called your mom's brothers and sisters or your dad's brothers and sisters or their wives and husbands by their first name. We didn't do that. We still don't do that. And I remember one day me and my cousin went fishing and we was fishing and my uncle came down to watch where we were fishing. And uh, he pulled a nice new lure out of his tackle box and he showed it to my uncle. And he says, hey, Orn, look at my new lure. And do you know what Uncle Orn did? He had the most stern and sour look on his face and he says, don't you ever call me Orn, boy. And I knew right then and there not to try that one. Well, some years later, I got married, and my wife came from another country and from a different kind of people. Her people were Amish years ago, and she referred to her uncles and aunts as Merle and Kenny and Floyd and this and that, and I didn't know about this woman. I just didn't know if that was safe, I mean. But then I found out that in their culture, you referred to your mom's brothers and sisters as uncle and aunt, but you were allowed to call them by their first name, and that wasn't rude at all. And so I had to get used to that. And so, really, we weren't more righteous than they. We just thought we were. I used to work for my neighbor, and he had three little boys. And what do you think they called their father? What do you call your dad? Papa? Daddy, okay. How about you in the pink dress? What do you call your, your father? Do you, do you, what, what endearing term do you call your father? Mm-hmm. Daddy. Is that kind of the popular word in this area? Okay. You know what these boys called their daddy? Sir. And I still work with these boys. They're my neighbors. And we're good friends. And they still call their daddy, sir. Now, we may think that's over the top. But there's a certain respect there that they understand in their family. And now these boys have boys. And what do you think they call their dads? Sir. And so family customs and family traditions are passed down. Well, I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm going to tell you one more illustration. When I was a little boy, it was very proper to wear suits to church. I don't know why. But my dad was a big believer in suits. All of us little boys wore suits to church. Now, that's not real popular anymore, but um, we wore suits to church. And one time, a man from West Virginia came to live with us, and he came from across the mountain, and his family was quite poor, and they had never gotten out across the mountains and never went to town very much. And his name was Bobby Hedrick. 
And Bobby came to live with us, and he was very shy and very bashful because he didn't feel comfortable living where there was lots of people and towns and lots of cars. And he stayed in his room a lot, and we would eat supper, and he didn't talk. He was very bashful. But my father invited him to go to church with us, and he said he would. Now remember, my dad was a big believer in suits, suit coats. Us little boys, we all had them. And I remember him coming up the steps one Sunday morning. We was getting ready to go to church, and he said, Boys, um, Bobby is going along to church with us. Would y'all just wear a pair of blue jeans and a flannel shirt? And we said, Yes. Now, maybe you all can't grasp that, but my dad taught us something that it was more important to be polite to Bobby Hedrick than it was to be proper, what he thought was proper in church. Now, don't worry, when Bobby left, suits came back on, but um, I want to read you a story. Daddy was the one who taught me the most important lesson about manners. It seems strange now, for certainly Mama was the person long on etiquette in our family. And she was from a tiny, she was a tiny city girl who had polished the rough farm edges off of Daddy 17 years before. And though she had not managed to rid him of his beloved ain't, she had helped him fit into urban life in St. Louis, at least until he'd saved enough money to buy a parcel of the Ozark Mountain acreage in Missouri. And even when we moved there, Mama never lowered her standard of gracious living, which included flowers throughout the house and always a white starch tablecloth and napkins at evening meals. She simply worked harder to provide it, pressing the linens with flat irons heated on the black iron wood stove. Consequently, the table was set with its best starched the night Jim stayed for supper. The red-haired, raw-boned, six-year-old neighbor had hired out to Daddy for the day to dig a storm cellar. And when the digging went past sundown, I was asked to ask Jim for supper. And he looked at me, a 10-year-old pixie with Buster Brown haircut, staring up at him with his big freckled face and slyly nodded his head and returned to his shoveling. Biscuits were raising in the oven and side meat gravy was bubbling when the men came in, blinking against the lamplight. And Jim stood staring at the table and his lips were parted in surprise at the white starch tablecloth and the nice place settings. Following Daddy's lead, Jim washed his hands and combed his hair at the square mirror above the wash bench. And then self-consciously smoothing his tattered overalls, the boy followed Daddy to the table. Jim's gaze darted quickly to my 14-year-old sister and Josie's blue eyes and blue satin ribbon slithering down her black curls. And while Daddy read a short passage from the family Bible, Jim slyly fingered his immaculate napkin with a callous, dirt-stained finger. After prayer, we all took our forks 
And it was then that I noticed a sudden wave pass over Jim's face. It was the same look of fear I'd seen in a startled deer when I came across her drinking at the spring. I couldn't imagine what Jim feared, but I saw that he held his knife in hand, and as if it were hot, he dropped it and reached for his fork. And now it was my turn to part lips in surprise as Jim lost forkful after forkful of beans and gravy down his front, and his face was flaming from his collar to his hair. Outside, he had handled the shovel with ease, but inside he was all thumbs. And Josie bit her lip and kept her eyes on her plate, and Mama looked helplessly at Daddy. And just when it seemed nothing could help the floundering boy, Daddy did the most curious thing. He put down his own fork and picked up his knife. And as I watched amazed, Daddy lifted whole forkfulls of beans easily to his mouth without dropping one bean. And Jim now discarded his fork and manipulated his knife as deftly as he had his shovel. And the boy was better at it than Daddy, loading both gravy and beans onto his knife simultaneously and hoisting the load rhythmically to his mouth. And Josie smiled and began to talk to Jim about school. And the boy answered blushing less. And I sat back studying the knife user's technique and wanting so to try it just once. But Mama caught my eye and her look warned me against it. When supper was finished, Jim folded his napkin and laid it almost reverently beside his plate. Ma'am, he said, looking at Mama Foley, them was the best biscuits I ever ate. But it takes that sorghum molasses my pa makes to do right by them biscuits. And he got up and moved toward the door and then turned back. And I aim to bring y'all some next time I come. Why, thank you, Jim. I'll be looking forward to that. And when he had gone, Mama turned to Daddy. Frank, she said, looking at him proudly, you were wonderful. None of that, Daddy replied, turning away the praise in his ho-hum voice. There ain't nothing more to good manners than making the other person feel at ease. Okay. Sometimes we have to do things different than the way we do them at home or in Gladys to make other people feel at ease. Okay, you can go back to your mom and dad. Again this evening, I uh, consider it an honor and a privilege to be here. Tomorrow evening, I'd like to talk to you, to you about raising citrus and orchids. And so um, you can come for that. This evening I want to talk <clears throat> called to be saints and I want to deal a little bit about personal sins or maybe things sometimes we consider respectable sins. Um, what is a saint? Are you and I saints? What is the biblical definition? I'd like to start by reading Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 through 7. familiar passage, and the king that 
year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts and the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then he flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, and which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Something come into my mind that <clears throat> has nothing to do with the sermon, but I, I, I want to tell you. It talked about the temple being filled with smoke. How many of you all have ever heard or remember Marcus Lynn from Oregon? Marcus Lynn. He was quite a Bible teacher. And he taught at Western High School and he wrote a commentary on Romans. And I went to give one to a friend and so I went on Amazon and it cost hundreds of dollars. And so they're out of print and um, quite a collector's item if you have one. Marcus Lynn uh, told this story to me one time, and he talked about smoke. Smoke represents what? The wrath of God. And he said whenever the Bible's talking about smoke, it's talking about the wrath of God. And he told about a suit coat that his dad bought. It must have been back in the 1800s or early 1900s because Marcus Lynn was an elderly man. And he's passed away quite a while. And then in this little pocket here, I don't know what it's for, but on that pocket was embroidered a little saying. And it said this, What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? I've never forgotten that. And so... <clears throat> For the next couple of evenings, I'm gonna, we're going to say that with you children. And I want you to be able to say that. And even though it's not written on your suit coat, because you don't wear them anymore, I want it written on your heart. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? Okay. As I was preparing for this sermon this morning... I was reminded again after reading this passage from Isaiah what a sinful and helplessly wicked person I am and how even my greatest efforts fall far short of God's holy and perfect standard. But I'm thankful tonight to serve a God with a big eraser. And we talked last night about God's um, work in us and how he accepts us and forgives us, and then he even calls us his sons. And so what a privilege that is this evening.
You know, in the Old Testament, we have the story of God trying to take Israel out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. But so much of the time, God was trying to get Egypt out of Israel. And so sometimes it's easier to move the people to a new country than it is to get the country or the world out of their heart. I'd like to read Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. <clears throat> Here we have a summary of God's will and desire for his people, to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve him. Why? It's for your own good. Not much has changed. God still expects the same for us today. And yet sometimes it seems as though those that call themselves Christian or evangelical or born again there's not much righteousness, not much evidence of a righteous life in them. There's the righteous life that God requires for honor and glory to him and to, for entrance into heaven. There seems to be little evidence of it. We're familiar with the verse in Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things. And then in the New American Standard, it says this, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. You know, if your heart is sick, boy, you, you get the ER and they slip that nitroglycerin under your tongue and they try to get you going. But sometimes we don't seem to be so concerned about our spiritual heart and the things that trouble it and the things that uh, take us away from God. And then in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind according to his ways and according to the results of his deeds. God knows. We can't hide anything from God. God knows the thoughts and our intentions. I don't want to go into a great discourse this evening on faith versus works. That's not the point of my message. But I'd like to have each one of us allow God's spirit to work in our own hearts and lives as we follow the instructions given in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, where it says, but let each one examine himself. I'm not going to examine you. You examine yourself. Um, you all remember Brother Ron Schantz. He's the father-in-law of Krista. And I said, Brother Ron, you all still teach Bible school up at Maranatha? He said, no, sir, I hated it. And I said, well, why, what was wrong? He says, I don't like grading papers. I don't either. That's a real downer at Bible school. I don't mind to teach, and I don't mind lunchtime, but I don't like grading papers. And he says, Brother Ron says, I will preach, and you grade yourself. And I like that. And I want to do that this evening. I will share with you what I feel God has laid on my heart, but you grade yourself. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. No, David wrote that, but did he really need to? God already knew his heart. God knows you're in my heart. A few summers ago, my late cousin, Daryl Brewaker, and I went to the mountains to go fishing. And he was in the last stages of cancer, but he said, yeah, he, he thinks he feels good enough to go along. And I knew this would be one of our last times together, and we'd been best buds forever. Our birthdays were just a few days apart. And on our way to the mountains, we had some very personal discussions. We talked about many things, and we agreed on a lot of things and we got to talking about the end of life and about judgment and we agreed that there's many things we don't know we're not sure how it's going to all pan out but we're sure of one thing that the blood of Christ was more than adequate to take care of any sin problem that he or I or you had it was more than adequate and then when we get to heaven and we stand before God Almighty, we didn't want no surprises. And you don't either. God has made provision that we can take care of everything here. And that ticket to heaven is good. You know, I go to Canada pretty regular and I always get this kind of naughty feeling in my heart when I get up there close to International Falls. Will they let me in? Will my passport be good? And you know, on what? Are they going to ask me this time? And then coming home, it's the same feeling. You know, them Americans, they're going to grill me. What am I bringing? What did I do? But when you get to heaven, you don't have to worry about that. That stuff is taken care of right here. I don't have time to tell you. But one time when I was coming back to Minnesota from Ontario, me and my wife spent a long time in the office. And... Um, it wasn't any fun. When I get to heaven, it ain't going to be like that. I took care of it here. Isn't it a joy beyond description to know that God, a sinless and holy God, has looked down on you and I, and even in our sinfulness has called us to be his children. And we can be called saints, the Bible tells us so. A couple years ago, I got a phone call from this nice, sweet little girly voice on the phone, and she was from Florida, and she wanted to know if, if she could buy calves, some calves off of us to raise in the 4-H program to show. And she wanted red and white Holsteins, and that's what we had, and because most of the calves were black and whites, and so these would stand out, she thought, and get the attention of the judges a little better. And, and uh, we tried to hammer out a deal over the phone. You know, it was about a 14, 15-year-old girl and never seen her before. Her name was Kaylee Brooks. And finally, we hammered out an arrangement that seemed to be good for us and good for her. And, and she was going to come up and get some calves. And she says, well, mister, I know that you don't know me. And I know that you shouldn't trust me. But we Christians and we live right. Okay, it sounded good enough for me. And one day they did show up to get their calves. Were they saints? Well, 
God knows, but they seem to fit the bill for me. And God knew their heart, but yet I would call them saints. Um, we've been back and forth some since. One day a salesman came to the farm, and he said he was so excited next week he's going on a cruise. And that's his up, upcoming vacation. And I said, so what's so cool about a cruise? I mean, what's a, what do you do on a cruise? He always oh, he said, it's hilarious. It's a blast. And I said, well, what's so hilarious? What's a blast about it? I mean, there's a lot of things in life to me that aren't funny at all. And so he went on to say, oh, he said, um, they got this one thing where they get these, the tourists get drunk, and then they impersonate these pop singers, and it's a blast. It's hilarious. Well, is that what saints do? Um, hmm. Romans 1, 18 and 32 tells about the fallen nature of sinful man and all the disgusting things they do and enjoy. And it concludes with verse 32 at the end of the chapter, and it says this, Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I had a friend, a dear friend, and he was a sports addict. He'd come home from church, couldn't wait to turn on the TV and watch football. And then one day he read this verse, and it hit him between the eyes. And, and um, I don't know what you all feel about pro sports and that whole industry and Hollywood and all that, but... You know, those people are not our kind of people. And, and the NASCAR and all those people and, you know, the women and the beer. And the Bible says that if you enjoy what they do, that you become guilty of their sin. And he said, I was so convicted. I trashed my TV and, and I, I got out of that, that thing. And, you know, that man dropped dead in January. He's 59 years old and had an aneurysm. I'm glad he took care of that stuff. Be careful what you approve. The Bible says in Romans 8.32 that you become guilty of their sin when you enjoy laughing at these people on a cruise or, or whatever. Be careful what you approve of. I want to look just for a few minutes at some of the things the Bible describes or calls saints. <clears throat> Now, in our tradition or evangelical circles, saint is not a common expression. Um, Paul, you, you, do people greet you, hey, saint? No, no. Maybe they should. Could they? I hope, so. I hope so. Okay. The word is more commonly used in Catholic or Orthodox traditions, and it often is used to describe a person of unusual godly character, especially if they're old. And maybe white hair helps. I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> you know, they might say, boy, if there was ever a saint, my grandmother was. And so what do you picture in your mind? You picture an old lady on a rocking chair with a Bible on her lap and she prays often, right? That's kind of what we picture. But isn't it more broad and more general than that? 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul addresses the Christians in both of these chapters as sanctified in Christ. 
Now, sanctified means a calling out. And then they are called to be saints. It uses the same family of words in the original languages. I'm not a big Greek, Hebrew guy. I, I tend to think we have reliable translations. Some people are interested in that, and, and God bless you. I'm just not that ingenious. But it, it says the same, sanctified and saint, or from the same word language. Titus 2.14 and 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Teach us that we have to have, um, have been redeemed from lawlessness, purified for good works. And we are not our own, but we were brought, bought with a price. And this is a biblical meaning and understanding of saint. This concept that started in the 1960s, for those of us who remember, if it feels good, do it. That doesn't cut it. That's not what saints are. There is a requirement to be a saint. Um, many things in life are not hilarious. They're not funny. They're shameful. And we should feel the same way about it. A saint is not someone who no longer sins. If we are honest with ourselves, we know that nearly every waking hour we are prone to sin in thought, in word, in deed. It's our old nature that wants to blow us off course. We know the reality of that. Saints are not perfect. That's not a requirement. Even our best deeds at times are stained with mixed or impure motives or imperfect performance. Galatians 5.17 tells us that our flesh fights or, <clears throat> or desires that which is against the spirit of a holy God. However, an awareness of this unturtle struggle with our sin nature should never be used as an excuse to justify wrong behavior. You ever heard somebody say, boy, did I ever give him a piece of my mind? That's not scriptural. In James, it, it tells about um, the, the, uh, righteous, uh, the righteous life that God requires is not uh, characterized by the anger of God. And so when you give somebody a piece of your mind, that is a nature of a fallen character. Well, the Bible has one word to describe conduct that is unbecoming to a saint. It's a short word. What do you think it is, Charles? Sin. Real simple, sin. It covers a wide range of shortcomings and wrongful acts, from gossip to adultery, impatience to murder. And yes, there are varying degrees of, or seriousnesses of sin, but in the final analysis, sin is sin, and the conduct is unbecoming to saints. When we sin, we break God's law. Now, is it possible to break part of God's law but keep the rest? Well, the scriptures would indicate that that's not the case, that it's seamless. When we break a part of the law, we break the whole law. God's law is not a collection of individual laws. 
It is a law of single, whole, uh, one. You know, the Bible says in James that if we murder, we break God's law. And when we have corrupting speech in Ephesians 4, we again break God's law. We've broken the whole thing. It's like if this was glass, I didn't just chip it. I, I broke the whole thing. It's God's law. If we gossip or lust or become uh, used to sinful pleasure and we choose to make these choices, at the time, the lure of that momentary pleasure is often stronger than our desire to please God, and that's why we fail. You know that little proverb that the pleasure derived, we get, the devil tells us that the pleasure derived from committing this sin will outweigh the consequences. But as soon as we do it, we know that's not so. I can tell you from experience, way too many times. I'd like to read Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many are as of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law, and do them. And um, God's standard is obedience, not performance as much, but obedience. Um, God also is more concerned about our obedience than our understanding. Sometimes we think if we just knew more of the Bible, if I just knew more scripture, if I went to more seminars, took more training, then I'd really be close to God. God really is expecting us to be obedient to the truth we know first. We can get deluded there. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some personal sins that trouble most of us. Um, Again, I'm thankful that our sin has been dealt with. We know the story in Leviticus where we talk about the scapegoat. and Aaron put his hand on that goat's head and put all the curses and sins on that goat. That, and then he was released to go out into the woods and the bush. And Man, what if you'd have been born that little goat? That wouldn't be a very glamorous life, would it? But it was God's way of dealing with the sins of his people at the time. And so, transgression is actually rebellion against God's authority. When I gossip, I rebel against God's authority. When I resent someone instead of forgiving him from my heart, I'm rebelling against God's authority. And though my sin may be small in my eyes, Big or small, we rebel against the sovereign God's authority. You know, we have this thing of, of judging sins by size and gravity and, and consequence. We don't understand the way God works. Sin is sin. Separ sin separates us from God, even though some sins have more consequence in, on this earth. 
but sin separates us from God all the same. It is wrong for us to presume on God's grace by tolerating sin in our lives. The very sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We need to see our sins as that way. Did my sin, the sin that I commit, the sin that I cover, the sin that I tolerate, were the very things that Jesus was nailed to the cross for? Well, what's the remedy for our sin? 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save who? Sinners. You and I. Not only must we face our sin, we must deal with it. We must put it to death. Remove it. Romans 8.13 and Colossians 3.5. It sounds like a lot of work and not much joy. Well, that's the way it is. Someone has said that duty without desire soon produces drudgery. Well, maybe you can't relate to that. But those of you who grew up on farms know about chores. Or maybe some of you children have chores. You've got to haul out the trash or feed the dog. You just really enjoy that, don't you? But you know... When you milk somebody else's cows, it's a chore. But when you milk your own cows, it's, it's, it's all right. That's the way life is. Duty without desire produces drudgery. And so if you're milking for somebody else, and you can learn to see that as a pleasure and, and a fulfillment of your life's purpose for that person, it no longer becomes a chore. Um, or maybe carpentering, you, you, you name the job. Life is like that. And as we affirm the truth of the gospel in our hearts and deal with sin problems in our lives, we can experience joy and fulfillment in our walk with God. It's not a chore. It's not a drudgery anymore. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that the only way to enjoy and attain the forgiveness of God is the blood of Christ shed on the cross on our behalf. There's no other way. There's no other way to get to heaven but to apply the blood of Christ on our sins. Christ promises blessings to those who are poor in spirit. You know, those verses come from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 4 through 6, blessed is this and blessed is that person. Well, what is the blessed and the poor in spirit? You know, it's, we don't use those terms very much anymore. But that is to face up to your sin and mourn because of them. We've all met people who sin and are proud of it. And um, maybe your mind goes to Mr. Trump. Uh, such an arrogant attitude towards sin. Those who mourn for their sin are those who are poor in spirit. And hopefully we've all been there. There will be fertile ground for growing fruit of the Spirit after we've been through that experience. Well, what are some of these respectable sins that can so easily drag us down? This thing of where we tend to go through the Christian life and it feels like we've got the park brake kind of on. You know, it's just, we're just not getting the speed or the joy out of it. I've been there, have you? You know, we're... 
the Christian life is just kind of, it's just not going good. You're just not getting up to speed. There's probably something wrong inside. Ungodliness. Ungodliness has to do with living your everyday life with no or little thought of God, God's will, or our dependence upon God. We see those people every day. We go to work with them. We do commerce with them. We're good neighbors to them. They're nice people. They may be courteous and polite people. They call their moms, brothers and sisters, uncle and aunt. They're helpful and they may even go to church. But they live their life as if God doesn't exist. They're not wicked. They're ungodly. That's what those people are. They're ungodly. In James chapter 4, 13 through 15, it tells of those who live, who buy, sell, and trade, and never get a thought of tomorrow. <coughs> Excuse me. They don't give a thought of tomorrow or God's plan for their life. They don't say, if God wills, I'll do so and so. They're ungodly. God doesn't matter to them. <coughs> you know, you and I can become like that. A low desire for spiritual things. Not much interest in the work of the church. You know, we can get right comfortable running our life on our own. Thank you. Uh, things are going pretty good. I, yeah, I might say a table grace, but... Um, Really, God doesn't mean much to me. We become ungodly when we're those kind of people. Oh, but then when we get sick, we need money, or we find our circumstances becoming uncomfortable and our life is kind of spiraling out of control, then we need God. But why don't we need God when things are going good? You know, I tell my boys, my boys, they love the woods, they hunt, they fish. And I say, well, you need to kind of have a, a barometer or an indicator of your, your joy. Do you have the same fervor and desire to be at church Wednesday night as you do to be in the deer stand? You know, measure yourself. The deer stand's okay. I mean, I'm done with it. I already did that. Don't need to do it anymore. But, you know, sometimes we can become so passionate about something that is okay and yet have a cool response, a cool desire for the things of God. That's when ungodliness sneaks in on us. Years ago, there was a couple came to our door, my wife and I, when we were living in the, on the reservation in Sandy Lake, Ontario. And, man, they, they had trouble. They hadn't been married very long, and they needed help. They needed help now, and we sat down and we talked to them, and, and we prayed with them, and they said things are better, things feel better. And the next week, I was busy. I had made a commitment to spend my week out on a trap line with some native fellows, and when I got back, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to go visit this couple first thing and see how they're getting along and invite them into church and see if I can get them in, interested in, in a Bible study group and... I got to their house and they didn't know me. You know, they got over their trouble and they didn't need me anymore. They didn't need God anymore. And I felt so put out. 
you know, they needed me. They needed God when things weren't going good, but they got over this hiccup in their marriage and, oh, we're good to go. We can be like that. At least I can. Psalm 131, verse 1 through 4. I won't take the time to read it. But God is aware of us, and he sees our every deed. He hears our every word. He knows our thoughts, and he even knows our motives. Well, there's this thing of anxiety. And if you're in business, or if you're in church leadership, um, whatever, there can be anxious moments. Someone says that if you're in Christian ministry, you're always in crisis. You're either just coming out of a crisis, in the middle of a crisis, or going into a crisis. Well, I trust your church isn't that way, but too many churches are, and church leadership is a huge responsibility, and sometimes we can become anxious. Or, <clears throat> I don't know about y'all, but the price of milk is just really went down the tubes for us. And we have commitments, and we can be anxious, and on and on. President Eisenhower says this, and I think it's quite eloquent. Prayer gives us the courage to make the decisions we must make in time of crisis, and the confidence to leave the result to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells about not being anxious. He tells us that we are to not stress overly on what we eat or what we air or to wear or unknown circumstances of tomorrow. You know, many people live on drugs to help control their anxious spirit, their anxiety. And I'm not talking about, you know, some people do deal with the mental illness and depression and my heart bleeds for those people. But I have a neighbor man who's always carrying Xanax and, and he's kind of whips his pills out and flashes them. And I'm gonna have to start taking more pills now that, and I think it's a crutch for him. I think he needs to learn to trust God for some of his issues. Paul writes, do not be over anxious about anything. Philippians 4, 6, 1 Peter. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares upon you. Anxiety leads to a distrust, a distrust of God, and it may be a lack of acceptance of God's provision for your and my life. We just don't like the way God's leading us. We don't care for it at all. There's been rough times in your life. There's been discouraging times in mine. And say, God, I just don't really care for this. But we need to learn to trust God and his provision for us. It is normal in our humanness to distrust God for what we cannot see and know and cheerfully submit and accept his agenda for me. John, Rutten, John Newton wrote this, How happy are they who can resign all to him and see his hand in every dispensation and believe that he chooses better for them than they could possibly choose for themselves. And um, I know there's probably some of you here who've been through tremendous heartache. We wouldn't have chosen that. But I believe what John Newton is saying is, 
God chose that for a reason, to bring about purity and growth in your life. Can we accept that? And along with anxiety is worry, things that keep you awake at night. Sometimes we realize that there's nothing we can do about it, and then we find release. I, I had a man that told me, I keep little pieces of paper in my pocket, and I know some people put their stuff on their smartphone. I, I just still stick with the paper, but he said at night, <clears throat> he takes all the little papers out of his pocket, and he has a nail driven into his bedpost with the head off and sharpened the one in, and, and he goes through his papers, and some of them he throws in the trash, and he stuffs the rest of them on the bedpost, and then he goes to sleep. And then in the morning, he gets up and he picks the papers off the nail and he goes through them and, and then some of them more still go in the trash. They took care of themselves during the night. And then the ones that haven't, he sticks back in his pocket and carries them to that day. Well, that's pretty cool, but uh, I try that. But sometimes papers get back in my pocket that I wished I could throw in the trash. You know that feeling. Well, there's discontent. An attitude may be triggered by unchanging circumstances that becomes trials to our faith. Um, an unfulfilling or low-paying job. You know, you're milking cows for somebody or, or working in a greenhouse and it's just drudgery. And, you know, I'm not knocking milking cows. That's just what we do. And people think it's just awful. An unfulfilling or low-paying job. Singleness well into midlife and beyond. An inability to bear children or an unhappy marriage. Physical disabilities or continual poor health. Discontentment can often lead to resentment or bitterness towards God and or other people. Psalm 139.16 would indicate that God wrote things in his book about us, how long we would live and where he wants us to be and what he has for us to do a long time ago. I have an anonymous poem here. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, and relinquish what you take. And the grace of God will sustain you. And I think as we are able to do those things, it's a maturing effect in our Christian life. <clears throat> well, we have pride. Uh, Luke 18 uh, talks about the Pharisees and the tax collector. And we know that story. In verse 11, it says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that other men, you know, robbers and evildoers, adulterers and even like this tax collector. When we condemn others, we easily fall victim to some self-righteous attitude. Pride is so easy to see in others, but it's so difficult and often not seen in ourselves. David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, From the time my mother conceived me. Boy, that goes way back. That thing of being proud. 
It's so human nature. How can we complain, uh, com claim a, a superior moral high ground when only by the grace of God we were all rescued from a depraved and sinful lifestyle? For Samuel 2.7 says, <clears throat> The Lord maketh the poor, and he maketh the rich. He bringeth low, and he lifteth up. We are not self-made men as much as we'd like to think we are. We didn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. All that you have and all that you are is a gift from God, and we need to remember that. We are here. Our intellect, our skills, our talents, our health, and our abilities, all came from God, and we need to remember that. I think that there's three periods of arrogance in every man, most every man's life. And so ladies, don't pile on. I'm going to tell them. You know, when a young fellow is 16 years old, what he doesn't know wouldn't make a very big book. You know, he's pretty clever when he's 16. And then when he's about 25 to 35, his children are small. They're dependent on him as their father. You know, they're all sitting down the bench from him, and if they misbehave, he taps them on the head, and he may take them home, and he may need to paddle them, and they go to bed, and life is good. And he looks over at his brother, who's got teenagers, or maybe cutting a shine and not behaving, and he says, you know, why don't that man discipline his sons? If he was clever like me, he'd, he'd discipline them sons. And then, perhaps his late 40s and early 50s. You know, why's that man such a poor doer? He, he just can't manage. He ain't got no money. I mean, if he was smart and, and good manager like me, he'd be rich too. And he looks at his poor brother and looks down on him with conceit and dissent, and he's arrogant and proud. I see that happening all the time, and uh, please don't fall into that trap. God has called a place for each of us in different vocations and different uh, economic levels. If life has been good for you, it's only by the grace of God. It isn't because you've been so good. Mothers, your pride can be displayed in your children, among many other ways. Is it so important to you that your child is the first to walk, the first to talk, the first to read? And of course, ace this preschool test. Or even know how the other children scored in comparison to your child. You know, when we had children going to school, that was a big deal. Boy, some moms had to know if their child had the high score and that's pride. And it's not just for mothers. I had a, an acquaintance one time, and he kept telling about his boy's sports achievements and how he'd won so many prizes and trophies, and, and he went on and on about this boy. And what, what an accomplishment. I mean, you'd have thought he was won the uh, triathlon at the Olympics or something. And the dad was a terrible bore. And the boy was a bear to be around. The boy listened to that trash and 
from his dad, and it ruined him. Failure to acknowledge that all of our successes will have ultimately come from God tends to promote a pride, an achievement that does not honor God. It is a form of pride, sinful pride. Sometimes there's a pride that keeps us from doing what we ought to know, and that's a social pride. I can think uh, in my childhood of a girl in my early youth years that was a sweet girl. I'm sure she was. I don't really know her that well. I mean, I've long gone from Harrisonburg. But I remember that there was one boy that picked on her. Uh, She wasn't one of the cool ones. She was not, as young people say today, she wasn't hot. But she was a fine Christian girl. And I was there one time when this boy was teasing her or made her the recipient of his jokes. And I didn't do anything about it because of my pride. I didn't want to look like I was taken up for her. I didn't look like that I was with her. I was more concerned what that boy thought than I was concerned about doing the right thing. Proverbs 3.27 Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power to give it. Remember that. Young people, there's social stigmas. It's always been. I see it at Bible school. You know, you got the cool group and and the in the warm group and the not cool group, you know. That's so mean. Don't do that. Defend those who don't have the power to defend themselves. Identify with those people. How many of you ever heard the story of Isabel Kuhn? Isabel Kuhn was a Canadian girl, a missionary to China in the 1930s and 40s. She worked for China Inland Mission. And... Um, my wife had, we started reading Bible, um, missionary biographies to our children when they were 10, 12 years old in our family devotions. And over a period of years, she's collected about 40 of them from Youth with a Mission, Pransom. And uh, we learned about all kinds of people that I didn't know. But Isabel Kuhn stands out, and I want to give you an <clears throat> And so she um, applied to be a candidate to serve in China with China Inland Mission. And uh, her grades were good in most every way. It seemed that she was just the candidate. And uh, so she went before the, the mission board of China Inland Mission in Toronto for her interview and, and she met with the people and this is, and they asked her to leave the room and then they called her back in to give her the results of their decision. And finally, Mr. Brownlee called Bell back into the room and began a stern summation of the council's deliberation. The council is very satisfied with the answers you have given. You have been a wonderful, you have been a wonderful addition to us here at China Inland Mission in Toronto. However, we do have one serious issue to raise with you. We checked all of your references and one of the people replying to our inquiry indicated that they could not recommend you for a post with us. Bell 
looked blankly from one council member's face to the next, hardly able to take in what she was hearing. Did this mean that she would be rejected from serving with the mission? And Mr. Brownlee continued, the person in question has said that you are proud, disobedient, and most likely in turn into a troublemaker. This person has known you for a long time, and we don't feel that we can totally ignore this person's input. Who is it? Bell asked, her throat dry and raspy. We cannot tell you, Mr. Brown Lee replied. We never say who said what, because we want our references to feel free to be completely honest. But I feel that I need to point out to you how difficult the forenamed qualities would make your life and the lives of others around you on the mission field. Bell dropped her head in dismay as Mr. Bradley spent the next hour lecturing her on cases of missionaries who had caused problems overseas. And when she wrote to her friend from Moody Bible Institute, explained to him how unfairly she had been treated, his reply to her letter was a surprise. Bell, you need to think of it differently. If someone had accused me of those traits, I would have answered, Amen, brother, you haven't been told the half of it. And Belle thought for a long time and heard about her friend's letter and finally conceded that he was right. Perhaps other people saw things in her that she did not see in herself. What was she trying to hide? And eventually she would run into some difficulty on the mission field. Everyone did, and pride might well rear its head within her. Perhaps it was better to agree with the reference writer than to argue the matter. This new attitude liberated Belle from resentment, and she felt relaxed, leaving the matter to God to sort out. And in his time and in his way, she told herself she would make it to China. And she did. Importance and irritability. Importance is often a strong stance of being annoyed at the faults and mistakes of others. We've all met those people, you know, the boss on the job or maybe a dad. I hope you're not that kind of a dad. First Corinthians 3, 13:4, love is patient. Do our children and co-workers see us as patient? You know, I'm the guy that likes to see the trains running and on time. And my wife has had to challenge me to cut the boys some slack. They're not slaves. It's my nature to see things running smoothly. And now, I've had to deal with that. Don't humiliate or talk down to those who are a source of your impatience. Usually their actions are unintentional. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Colossians 3.21 And there will be times when, need you, when you need to go back to your wife and children and say, I'm sorry. Please, don't be so arrogant as to not learn to say, I'm sorry. And I've had to go back to my employees and my boys over and over again. The good thing is, they never think less of me. 
You know, you, oh, I gotta humiliate myself in front of my boys or my, never have they said, yeah, you're a big turkey here. They always granted me forgiveness and things were better. Patience is something most of us never really arrive at. But it needs to be cultivated. You need to work at it. Irritability is described as the frequency of our impatient outbursts. The slightest provocation can set you off. You know those kind of people. And if love covers a multitude of sins, how much more the need to cover the many acts of the irritable part of us? I was in um, Northern Ontario a few years ago and I heard a native um, speaker speak at a Bible conference. His name is Bill Jackson. He's quite a talented speaker from Alberta. And he was telling about a funeral that he attended. And you probably heard jokes like this. But um, in Northern Alberta, there was a notoriously wicked, evil man and he was abusive to his wife and children and they could never please him and he talked down to them treated them terribly and in the fullness of time as the scripture says he passed away and but at the wake or the visitation or whatever you know, they was taking their turns coming up to the front of the auditorium and saying all these glorious and wonderful things about the man that had passed and such flowery kind things about him. And finally the wife and daughter got up and walked out. And back in the foyer, the mom said to the girl, do you hear what those people are saying about your father? She says, would you go back up there and look in the casket and see if they've got the right man? And so we can't change things in our relationships when we're in the box. But today you can. The people that you've hurt, the people that you take for granted, the people that you're irritable with, apologize and make it right today. Well, then there's critical and judgmental attitudes. This can be so subtle because we often convince ourselves that we're so zealous and right that we can't possibly be wrong. And we equate our opinions right up there with scripture and the truth. You know, we've got it figured out. I read a quote in a farm magazine and it says this, he was often wrong, but never unsure. That is so descriptive of so many people. You know, the, the more wrong they are, the more they try to convince themselves that they're right. I have a story I'd like to tell you, but I'll have to pass. I just don't have time. It is so easy to become judgmental towards anyone whose opinion is different than ours. It is easy to hide under the cloak of Christian convictions. You know, they play that trump card. You know, I'll be offended. Really? They just want to put you in your place. It is easy for all of us to judge. Romans 14.4 says, Who are we to pass judgment on another? 
But when we practice it ourselves, we often become critical, critical of others. To speak in a disparaging manner, we often speak about people that way. It's one thing to talk about your cows that way, but don't talk about people in a disparaging way. Do we continually find fault with others, members of our own church and family, those whose opinions are different from ours? We need to be careful. And then finally, envy and jealousy. Envy is the painful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by somebody else. I want what he doesn't have. We want the same things, and our envy is usually just directed at those who are much like us, a job, a skill, a talent, or a friendship. Most envy can be boiled down to the fact that someone is getting the attention that I want. Romans 1 and Galatians 5 both mention how grievous this sin is. It's a serious sin. Jealousy is an intolerance to rivalry. You know the story about King Saul and David. You know, David killed his thousands and King Saul just a handful or however it went. Saul, Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Jealousy often happens when we've been blessed in a certain gift or ministry. And then someone comes along and outperforms us. I always get a little scared when I hear about some evangelist that was just so awesome. And then I get asked to go to their church and oh my. And, um, but am I jealous? Do I want the acclaim that that person has? We tend to be that way. We don't naturally want someone to experience the blessing in God that we think that we should enjoy. When we spend a lot of emotional energy on energy and jealousy, we lose sight of what God wants to do through our lives. And then it becomes controlling or a rivalry. And this is often a habit of viewing others as rivals. And we are competing against them instead of them being our brothers in the church. And this is so common in church problems and church leadership where there's a power struggle in the ministry and then it spills down into the pew. And I think most church issues start in the, in the leadership and not in the pew. I really feel there's a lot of jealousy and envy sometimes over gifting or, or ability. Well, tonight, it's wonderful that God can bless um, each of us in the way that we can be relieved of all of these things. You know, some people like to dominate relationships and, and put power and pressure on others, and it's so disruptive to church life. But God has made a way where we can all be together at the foot of the cross and we can all be equal and have good opinions of others. And I've talked about a few things tonight that are common to all of us. Sins that plague us. Sins that struggle us. Anger. Uh, the tongue or some things I haven't talked about. Self-control. The list goes on. It's time to close.
But I told you at the outstart this evening that I am reminded again of my sinfulness, my shortcomings, and I've failed many times. My heart is always blessed when we sing that song, verse 3 of When Peace Like a River. I feel at times that song was written just for me. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And so this evening, I ask, have you been to Jesus with your sin problem? Have you accepted the blood and his death for your sins? Some years ago, I had a boy, his name is Joel, was going to Nicaragua. And the requirements were a little stricter back then than they are now because our second son didn't have to go through this. And for his application to get his visa to enter Nicaragua, he had to have a background check, a criminal check. And um, so he was at Heritage Bible School, and so he came home. He got permission from Mr. Galen to come. And I had an appointment with the county sheriff. And so we rode over there, and, and we went to the little window there where the ladies work in the office. And they said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, uh, my son needs a background check and a certification. And she says, well, I don't know. We've, we don't do that here, I don't think. And they kind of hemi-hauled around, and, and here come down the hall, if it wasn't Sheriff Ed Darnell, the, the real and proper duly elected sheriff of Bamberg County. And he come up to us and says, what do y'all want? And, and uh, Joel says, well, <clears throat> yeah, he was being a little intimidated. Here's this big man with these guns and, he, and all of his stuff. And, he says, well, I need a background, a criminal check. Oh, well, you can't get that here. Uh, you got to go to Columbia to get that. And he said, uh, hmm, well, what do you need that for? Where are you going? And, and, of course, my boy, you know, he was trying to be a good witness, but he was a little scared, you know. And he's, well, I'm fixing to go uh, to Nicaragua as a missionary. And the uh, sheriff, he slapped him on the back. God bless you, boy. Oh, I, I'm just so happy for you. And, I wish you the Lord's will, and you know, and he says, hey, one of my deputies, would you come over here? This boy needs a background check. Would you get one of the cruisers ready, fill it up with gas, and would you carry him up to Columbia and help him get his paperwork and then bring him home? And I said, well, thank you, Sheriff. I really appreciate that, but he's supposed to be back in class at Bible school here this afternoon, and it's not going to work out. But I want you to know, that while Sheriff Darnell can get my son to Columbia, he can't get him to heaven. Sheriff Darnell has the same sin problem that you and I have. Only the blood of Christ can take care of your and my sin problem. Maybe it's those little hidden secret sins that you have in your life. Maybe you've never confessed your sins at all. Maybe you're just now coming to the age of accountability. But I want to know, you don't go to Sheriff Darnell for that. You go to Jesus. I'd like to ask our course leader, if you could lead a verse of Just As I Am. And we'll sing, if you feel God speaking to you, stand to your feet. And I'll acknowledge you and someone will pray with you after. Shall we, shall we sing, Just As I Am?